Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Good, everybody. It's Matt here with the uh, Director Video Connoisseur Podcast. Um, before we get into the meat of the pod, I just wanted to make a couple announcements. Uh, first and foremost, we're going to be going bi-weekly after this episode. I was just looking at it and, and what I had to, as far as material for making episodes, and it just seems like bi-weekly is probably better where I can gather more things to talk about, have more to discuss on a podcast that way. Um, I was looking at other blogs, and a lot of them were doing like maybe, you know, bi-weekly or monthly podcasts. So I thought probably better for me to go that route, especially since I'm doing um, weekly uh, po uh, weekly posts on the blog still. Um, so that is one thing that is, still, is going to stay the same. I'm still going to be posting weekly. Uh, I actually have next week's uh, review already taken care of. So we will still be doing the blog weekly, but the podcast is going to go bi-weekly. Another announcement, um, I talked to somebody at TalkShoe about the past episode. So I don't know if you saw, but... Turns out I had lost episodes one through 25 of the podcast that I did back in 2014, 2015. So the earlier iteration of the podcast here. I found out from somebody at TalkShoe that um, I guess they had some kind of major data issue and they lost everything from pre-January 2015. So the first 25 episodes of the blog or of the podcast were done in 2014. Those are all gone from the site. It also means the links that uh, for those those uh, reviews that I did. So I don't know how many of those 25 I did reviews on the uh, Director Video Connoisseur site for, but any of those would have had links, and those links would be no good for those 25. Uh, for example, Ninja 2, I did a, a post on Instagram about that one, and yeah, that that the link on that post to that podcast is, is no longer any good. I think I have the episodes. I have an old computer that I haven't opened in a few years. I think they're all on there. Um, there's two that might not be. If, if any of them are on there, there's two that might not be. Um, there were two that Jamie and John Cross from the After Movie Diner did when Jen and I were getting married and we, we were away that period. I don't know if those two are on my computer or not, but hopefully the rest are. Um, the person I talked to at TalkShoe said that there's no limit to how many uh, blogs you can have on there, or how many, how many, I'm sorry, not how many blogs, how many episodes you can have on there. So hopefully we'll be able to grab those. Um, and and I'll, I'll keep you posted when I get them up there. The other thing is um, 
you might have heard that I, I we have started an Instagram for the direct-to-video content source. So it's kind of the, the last bastion of social media that we hadn't gone to yet. Um, I had my own personal Instagram, and I was using it to follow some of the other blogging sites like After Movie Diner, uh, Exploding Helicopter, um, Explosive Action. But now we've created one for the direct-to-video connoisseur. So it's, it's um, DTV connoisseur. If, if you're on Instagram, you're welcome to follow us, take a look at what we have. Right now I'm just posting memes, um, either memes of images from the current review that's out there, or going back into the archives, finding old images and making memes out of those. That's mostly what I'm posting right now. Um, also looking to do the same thing with the Tumblr site. Haven't really demoed with a Tumblr site in a while. Looking to put some of those memes up on there as well. So as a way to use that. And of course, Twitter, still kind of doing our thing with Twitter. So you're always welcome. Usually the things get posted to Twitter and Facebook in terms of announcements or what we're doing. But also a lot of times that stuff on Instagram and, and uh, Tumblr makes its way to Twitter as well. So you may find it on there too. And of course, if the Patriots are playing, I'm usually on Twitter finding out what people are complaining about the refs and stuff. And then I that's usually how I catch up on blogging stuff myself on there. So um, Twitter is always a good place to get a hold of us too. But and the best place to get a hold of me is always the, the Facebook site, or you can email me on the Yahoo account because I'm back to using that again. All right. So what we're going to discuss today, um, first, uh, Richard Haas, one, one of our, our uh, blog readers, he made a comment on the Facebook page about how he'd like to have me discuss uh, the state of the DTV market versus streaming. So that's what we're going to discuss first, and then also we're going to get into the movie uh, Gerald's Game that I reviewed recently for the blog. And it's actually interesting because what Richard brought up, it actually dovetails really well with, with Gerald's Game because Gerald's Game was the first, uh, Gerald's Game was the first Netflix only or Netflix um, release that I had ever reviewed on the blog. So, you know, it's done a lot of movies that were on Netflix, a lot of movies on Netflix streaming, but this was the first Netflix original that I reviewed. And one thing I discovered is you can't get it anywhere else. You can only get it through Netflix. Now, I don't know if they had a DVD copy available if you had their DVD service, but I couldn't find a DVD for it on Amazon or anything like that. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that because on the one hand, I love Amazon or Netflix streaming. I love what it, what it offers. Uh, but with the Netflix original, what it means, right, is is that you have to have a Netflix account in order to view the movie. Um, when you think of a DVD, you buy the DVD, you have the DVD, you make a one-time purchase, $10, $20, whatever it is, but you've got that DVD for as long as the DVD is still good, right? As long as the DVD is still working, it's not scratched or whatever. And you can watch the movie over and over again as much as you want. With something like Gerald's Game, I've got to pay 12 bucks a month through Netflix every month to be able to watch it. That just happens that I use Netflix for a lot of other things as well. But you know, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's something that I, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily how I feel about it. When I think of the, the evolution of streaming through the course of this blog, I mean, it's really been throughout the time that the blog has existed, the director video connoisseur blog has existed, that we've seen this, this, this growth in streaming. When I started the blog in 07, I don't think Netflix had their streaming site yet. Um, I don't know if Hulu did either. Um, Amazon Prime was streaming some videos. And then, of course, cable companies had their on-demand service. But even that didn't have a lot of options. And, you know, with TV shows back then, some of them went on-demand, some didn't. Um, some you'd have to wait a week for. You know, nowadays, I mean, you know, tonight my wife and I watched Roseanne, or uh, the Connors, sorry, the Connors. Um, we watched it. Um, 20 minutes after it aired, we were able to watch it on demand. So, I mean, it's great because, you know, there's no such thing as appointment viewing anymore, right? We just watch things whenever we want to. 
Um, but back then in 07, that wasn't really the case. If you wanted to watch something that was on, that was being broadcast live on, on cable or, or, or broadcast TV, you had to watch it then, you had to DVR it, or you were going to miss it. You had to either wait till it played again, or maybe have to wait a week for it to go on demand. Now it's different, right? Now there are so many options on demand. Now um, Netflix streaming has blown up. Um, I think it was 08 or 09 I got the first version of the Roku. I uh, remember that that square, that box form that it was in. And I remember there were only a few channels you could get on at that time. Netflix was one of them that didn't have YouTube at that time. And I remember I was living with my roommates in, in Portland, Maine at that time. And I was so excited to have this Roku thing and have it hooked up in the living room. And we tried to watch a movie. I can't remember if it was like Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore or something like that. And it just kept freezing and loading or like, you know, stopping and saying it was loading. And, and um, it, it was hard to watch. And my roommates were like, man, you wasted a hundred bucks on this Roku thing. It's crap. Um, of course, you know, Netflix fixed the, the software with it. It started working again and suddenly, boom, you know, there we go. Um, at that time, I still had my DVD account with Netflix and most movies I was getting through DVD. Every once in a while, I would stream one on there, the, the streaming service. And then within a few years, remember there was that whole debacle there where they had, they had what was it, Flickster and Netflix or something like that, where they're trying to separate the DVD and the, and the streaming? I think it's because they knew how this streaming thing was going to go. And, you know, fast forward 10 years and now streaming is everywhere, right? Streaming is the way to do it. And to be honest, I mean, for my wife and I, we almost never buy DVDs anymore. And even the DVDs we own, we often just leave them in the cases, leave them in the boxes that they're in or like the, the, the shelf or whatever. If the movie's available on streaming, we just stream it instead. Um, a lot of movies like that, Taxi Drivers one, you know, so we want to watch it, Goodfellas. Um, oh, let's, let's just stream it, you know, the, why, why bother to get the DVD out and, you know, hook up the DVD player to all that other stuff. You know, it's easier to stream. That being said, I, I do think, you know, what we're talking about here with the streaming sites is that, if you don't own it, it means that you're beholden to the streaming site to make sure that they always have it. And that can be an issue, right? That's an uh, that's a concern. Things get pulled, you know, they, they have contracts. I mean, I remember I learned the hard way with Netflix. Um, I had tons of great movies in my queue. And then um, there was a period where Netflix and Stars, I don't know that they had a falling out, their contract was pulled or something like that. And a whole bunch of Stars movies that Netflix had were getting pulled suddenly. Uh, I think I called it like the stars. I called it the Netflix dump stars eight or something like that. I don't know if you remember, I did a whole bunch of their movies all, all at once. I had to binge like eight or nine movies just to have them watched, get the images for them and everything. And then I reviewed them over time. But that was my first introduction to the fact that what the streaming service has now isn't always what it's going to have. Um, the, probably the biggest one, of course, was when Hulu Remember, they had all the Criterion films. And, you know, Criterions were great to have as a collector as well, which I'll talk about in a second. But it was also great to be able to stream them. And I had so many, I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this sometime. Oh, I'm going to watch, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, Ozu pictures and, and um, uh, Seijin Suzuki pictures, things like that. And one day I went on there to look at the movies and they were gone. All the Criterions were gone. So Criterion decided to join up with somebody else and make their own streaming service, which of course I wasn't going to pay for, but it's like, boom, that's it. They're all gone before you know it. Um, so that is an issue with streaming. Um, now, what Richard was talking about was that he noticed that, and, and I think um, some other people were talking about that, uh, that new releases were going straight to streaming and they weren't getting DVD releases as much. 
I looked into that a little bit here and I didn't quite see the same thing. I was seeing like maybe two thirds of the new movies that were coming out direct to video were getting a DVD release as well. Uh, one thing I checked was Redbox. Redbox was a good avenue because I could see, does Redbox have it available to, to rent on DVD or is it just available to stream? And like I said, I'd say about two thirds were available to rent on DVD as well as to stream. Um, but there was that, that, that third that you could only get through streaming. I found it was difficult. Um, we have Prime right now, my wife and I. I found it was difficult to search on Amazon for DVD copies of movies because a lot of times, if they had it on Prime, that's how they wanted me to watch it, and that's what they were suggesting. And you'd have to kind of dig into the, the the product description to find where you could get it on DVD. A lot of times, we're getting it used in those cases. So that that was one thing that was 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 different. Another thing that I think helps the DVD market in the United States. And I imagine it probably does everywhere else, but collectors still want DVDs. So I think of companies like Arrow and Vestron, um, Criterion as well, um, even though they have their streaming site, they when they release DVDs, there are a lot of features with their DVDs. You think of uh, uh, alternate audio tracks where you get commentary from the filmmakers, you know, booklets that come with it, featurettes, all those kinds of things that that make, a, make the DVD experience better than streaming for collectors. I think that's always going to be a big one. So, you know, of course, the big pictures are always going to have a DVD release. Uh, classics will always have DVD releases. But I think with these new ones, what 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 Richard was seeing in, in the UK, what we are seeing a little bit more in the US is that for these direct-to-video movies, nobody really wants that other stuff. And that's an issue because yeah, if nobody else wants that other stuff, then why put it on DVD? Why waste the time? Let's just put it on streaming. That is a little disappointing for me because while I don't do really DVD releases much anymore, the biggest reason is that um, the computers that I'm using don't have DVD players. I'd have to get a computer with a DVD player again. Uh, my old one, that old one with the, the old podcast on it has a DVD player. Without a DVD player, it's hard to capture images for, for, for the, um, the, the film. But one of the bone of, uh, benefits to having the DVD copy was a lot of them had that that filmmaker's audio uh, track. So a lot of times I would watch a movie all the way through, and then I would watch it with the the commentary to see if the impression that I was getting of, of the film, of mistakes or issues or things like that, see if maybe there was an explanation for why they did something the way they did it. I, I found it was a way to give the filmmaker another chance, and we don't get that now. Um, one of the great things about streaming, I think, is for micro-budget independent filmmakers, that's a really great way for them to get their movies out because they don't have to pay distribution costs. They don't have to pay to have movies put onto DVD. It saves them a lot of money. Um, one in particular I'm going to think of is Jason Horton. Uh, he's a great uh, micro-budget director who I follow on Instagram. and uh, he, He's had me watch some of his movies before. One of them he wanted me to watch is a film called Trap that I believe is only available on, on Amazon. I think it's available to rent and that's it, which I think renting and, and Prime are a little bit different because I think renting, to, to rent the movie, I think it's a I think you can put it up for free if you rent it. I think if it's a Prime movie, you have to pay Amazon a fee or something like that. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but I feel like it might be like with CreateSpace. With CreateSpace, you, you, you don't have to pay to have your book published. It's just Amazon takes some of the money that you make when you, make, when you sell the book. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how that works, but I, I, you know, I think it was like a $2 fee to rent it overnight. Um, and you know, it was really great. It was a great way for me to see his movie that way. Um, and for him to get it out there. And it was, I think it was a movie worth seeing. And it was good that he was able to, you know, with everything that he put into making that movie, that that was a way that 
I could see it, review it, and, and talk about it and those things. And of course, I didn't necessarily need a director's commentary in that case because I could hear from him, you know, how, how it all went. Uh, but it is a nice, it's nice for low budget filmmakers, micro budget filmmakers to, with their commentary track, let us know some of the things that they ran up against. Uh, what are the some of the things that they you know the, the challenges that they had uh, so that that is one thing we lose now with streaming so on the one hand they get the movies out there better but on the other hand it you know you lose some of that and i've noticed with screeners sometimes you have these opportunities to interview filmmakers for me it's like i almost never have time to to, to coordinate a time to talk with them and you can only ask a few questions it's not the same as watching the, the commentary and having them as they're watching it pick up on things that they they thought about. So that's one thing that is a little bit of a disappointment for me that knowing that these movies, you know, if, if it ever goes that direction. But, you know, right now I'm only watching them on streaming anyway, so I'm not getting that part of it anyway. So, you know, maybe that's, that's part of how it is. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it goes in the future, but I have a feeling it'll probably keep flipping, right? That right now two thirds are DVD, one third is are streaming only that might flip. And of course, as companies like uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Hulu, and all those places, as, as these companies come in to fill the void that's being left by the big movie, uh, you know, the big uh, motion picture houses, we're going to see more of these movies going straight to streaming. Uh, when I think of Gerald's Game, which I'll be talking about in a little bit, that's a movie that I think in the 90s would have been, would have been given a big theatrical release, and it would have been playing nationwide, and I think it would have made some money in the theater as well. But now with the way movies are, where you've got Disney trying to take up 40% of the screens with all their blockbusters, and you know, if the other ones, you know, Universal, Sony, whatever, with, with the little space that's left, they're not gonna take a chance on a Gerald's game. They need to get their own blockbusters out there and, and, and get those in the theater to try to jockey for that other space. So. You know, Netflix comes in and says, hey, I'll release your Gerald's game. I, you know, you've got big, we, we, we've got the money, we can do it. And then the only way you can get Gerald's game is if you have a Netflix account. So it's, you know, at least the movie gets made, right? At least the movie's getting made somehow. But it is that, that way that they have these monopolies like that, that I think, you know, does leave a little bit to be desired. Um, and it's something that I do worry about. So I think we'll have to see how it looks, you know, it's, it's going to be a different landscape in 2029 for sure, considering how it's changed since we started in, in 2007. All right, so we're going to start looking at Gerald's game now. So, um, you know, I wanted to do three horror films for October. So I did the, the, the screener for Clown Nato, the Todd Sheets film, and then wanted to do an old one in Chopping Mall. And then I thought for a third one, I want to do something a little different, something that's not a traditional horror film, even though it is a Stephen King film, right? We think of Stephen King as the master of horror. So uh, it was, but I, I, it's, it's horror in a different way, and, and a horror in a way that I really like. Before I talk about that, I should mention that Stephen King, of course, is from my home state of Maine. Um, and if you ever been to Maine, um, you've probably been to like the coastal area, the more, more populated or the nicer beachy areas. I grew up in Southern Maine and I would say of the 1.3 million or so people that live in the state of Maine, the bulk of the population is centered in the bottom four counties. So, you know, within about an hour or two of Boston, Massachusetts, the rest of the state, of course, that makes the rest of the state much more sparsely populated. Um, it's a state, I think it's about the size of Austria, but again, only has about a million, a little over a million people. And I went to school at the University of Maine, which is also where Stephen King went. And that's about three hours north from where I was. And if you get off the beaten paths a little bit, it gets creepy out there really quick. 
And I feel like Stephen King, more than anybody, is, is able to take that creepiness and project it into his work in, in a way that is, is just, just chilling, but also for me, hits home as, as growing up as a Mainer. Probably anybody who grew up in, in parts of the, the, the world that have those remote areas, you, you know what he's, what he's conveying there with that. I have to confess I've never read any of Stephen King's books, but uh, the only time I've ever read any Stephen King, again, I mentioned he went to the same university that I did, and he donated all of his books in foreign languages to the foreign language department at the University of Maine. So I had a minor in German. I was taking a class on translation, a German translation, and our professor had us read the first three pages of Pet Cemetery in German and translate them back into English. I, my German at that time wasn't great. I mean, of course, it was never, you know, now it's like almost non-existent. But at that time, I was probably like an intermediate level. So I was maybe understanding two out of every three words or so. And even through that kind of filter, the creepiness that he was exuding through those first few pages really came through. And it was something that I, I really appreciated, something that I, I, I thought was really, really stunning for me. Uh, so when we get into Gerald's game, I think that part of it does come through. That that part of the, you know Stephen King's creepiness, also the brutality of the, that happens in a lot of his books, that comes through as well. It uh, definitely doesn't pull any punches with this movie. And and I, I think the thing I loved about it in terms of it being a different kind of horror movie. So the way the film goes is Carla Gugina is, is married to uh, Bruce Greenwood and they go to their, their cabin or their summer house trying to reignite their marriage that's on the rocks. And to spice things up, Bruce Greenwood's character brings handcuffs in and he handcuffs Carla Gugina to the bedpost and tries to act out some kind of rape fantasy that he has. She's turned off by it. And then as they're trying to figure out what to do next, he has a heart attack and dies. That's it. And she's stuck, right? She can't do it. You know, she's, she's handcuffed to the bed. The, the key is too far away. What I like about that in terms of a horror movie is that your villain in a way is, is the handcuffs, right? Just like if you've got characters that are stranded on a mountain, the villain is the mountain. You can't negotiate with the handcuffs or the mountain. You, you, you can't talk your way out of the situation. You can't hope for, for, for a miracle. You've either got to get out of it or you, you can't. And, and I like that kind of horror because, you know, we think of these baddies and these boogeymen in movies. And there's an idea that you can convince them or you can talk them out of what they're doing, that they that there's, you know, there's some a lot of times there's a female character that they become attached to and they just they don't kill her or something like that. And, and I like this kind of a horror thing where someone's trapped in a situation. They're being held prisoner, but not by anybody in particular, but they're being held prisoner by circumstances that they have to find their way out of. And the horror is real in that case, right? It feels much more real because anybody could be in a situation like that. The boogeyman thing, a lot of times it feels supernatural. It feels uh, beyond the pale, beyond something that you can believe. But these situations, you think about, like, what would I do? How could I get out of this? This is frightening. You know, just like being stuck on a mountain or being stuck in, in you know, in the middle of the ocean in a, on a boat or something like that. These kinds of things, I think, can be really, really scary because they feel so visceral, so real. That being said, movie was about uh, 100 an hour and 45 minutes long, something like that. For me, it had about enough material for a really good Tales from the Crypt episode. So maybe about 45 minutes to an hour worth of material. I mean, 
unfortunately, there's not much you can do. I mean, there were some really cool ideas with her. She was, you know, hallucinating. She was talking to her hallucinations. She was trying to figure out ways to kind of keep herself hydrated, things like that. And that's all really good stuff. It was compelling. She was having flashbacks to her childhood. That was compelling. But again, how much can you do it before it starts to get repetitive, before you feel like you're spinning your wheels? I looked on Amazon and I saw that this, or not Amazon, I think it was on Wikipedia, I saw that the original novel that this was based off, the Stephen King novel, was about 350 pages. So, you know, I think when, when you think about writing versus uh, movie making, you could write 20 pages that maybe takes a half hour to read. And a person could start the page one, get to page 20 and go, oh, wow, a half hour's gone by. Wow, that, that's crazy. I can't believe it. You know, maybe I want to train and just like, oh, you know, there we go from New York to Stanford. That, that you know, Stanford, that I didn't realize I was, you know, used up that much time. The same 20 minutes or 30 minutes in a movie could feel like forever. And I, I think sometimes that's what happens in taking a book and putting it into a movie form is that the book reads faster than the movie can keep up with when the movie's, you know, when it's being transported to the screen like that. And that may have been what, what, did, what happened here, that this may have been only really enough to make a, you know, a, what would have been a good Tales from the Crypt episode for sure, but it just wasn't quite enough, in from, or not, not quite enough material to make that happen. The other thing was they had a kind of a fake boogeyman or they, they kind of grafted on this boogeyman idea. And I don't want to give away too much of how the ending is, but I felt like that hurt the movie as well because it took what was non-traditional and tried to make it traditional again. And I, we didn't need that. I didn't. I didn't need that. I, I, it was good with the way it was. So that that felt a little bit inorganic at the end there. Not something that I was, ugh, you know, that 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 I was. I wanted it. It kind of betrayed the movie for me, which uh, upset me a little bit. Now, you know, we talked about the the idea of the Gerald's game, right? That he's, you know, sort of. I, I, acting out some kind of bondage uh, rape fantasy with, with Carla Gugino. And I think that does bring up a bit of a point where a lot of these direct-to-video movies we watch, they have that damsel in distress trope. That's probably the best way to say it. I know it's like more probably one of the worst tropes amongst movie review bloggers is using the word trope, right? But that, that whole idea of the damsel in distress, we see it a lot. And one of the things I thought about this was that you know, the bondage in the in the, the, the their intimate scenes, it was not sexy, seductive, sultry, any of those things. It was awkward, uncomfortable, uh, creepy. It, it was not fun, not anything that, you know, you, it, this was no Fifty Shades of Grey or anything like that going on here. I thought that was really good. I thought it was good to play it like that, that, you know, Bruce Greenwood's character might have some issues going on. And Carla Gugina is trying to straddle the line between making him happy and really being uncomfortable and not wanting to go where he's going with this stuff. And I thought that was really cool. And it was a really good contrast to what we see, I think, in the directed video movies, where it's like, you know, you get these female characters that kind of just, you know, get kidnapped by the baddie. They're kind of, you know, maybe tied up and then sort of, you know, uh, treated really roughly by them. And then the hero comes and everything's good again, and it's all back to normal. And this definitely turned that on its ear. Um, and I'm not saying that every time a movie does a damsel in distress thing, that they're not doing it for a good reason or that it doesn't impact the plot. But I think you can also see that there are probably some filmmakers who just like that kind of thing, and that's what they're putting into the movie that way. And, you know, you think about it from the, the character, you know, the, the standpoint of the filmmaker, probably easier to convince the, the female lead to do that kind of thing than to, to the nudity part of it, which some filmmakers really want in their movie as well. So they got to get the stunt double or something like that. This is a different way for them to play out their own 
that, you know, whatever that they, they have. Um, so, so there's that part of it as well. And I just like that this, this movie just turned it all on its ear. It just said, you know, no, this is, you know, we're, we're getting it all from Carla Gugina's standpoint and there's no sympathy for, for, for Bruce Greenwood's character with this. It's, it's all creepy and it's all bad. And I think it was a very, it, that sense was very Stephen King to, to, to give it to us that way. That there was nothing fun about this, which I think is just good. I mean, that's what Stephen King did, right? It's not the fun is supposed to be in getting creeped out and getting scared by it, right? And and I thought that was good. You know, we didn't get let down easy at all with any of this. Um, so it was that combination of of that treatment of it, plus the fact that it was non-traditional in a horror sense that that I really liked. One other thing about this movie that I thought was really cool is that it was shot in Alabama, in Mobile, Alabama. Um, another movie that I, I watched with a blog recently called Blackwater with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and uh, Dolph Lundgren. That one was also shot in Mobile and they both look really nice. And, you know, I think of now, it's a common thing. Most states in the United States, their governments are putting money into getting films shot in their states. I think of Detroit, Michigan, uh, Louisiana, New Orleans is, is big. Uh, Georgia has been really big with that as well. And, and But the thing is that I noticed with the New Orleans and the Detroit ones is that they're always a really gritty area. Um, now, there's still a lot of positives with getting the movie made, right? That they're, they're putting money into those areas. They're paying for things like catering, technical support, but also they're employing people to work on the movies there in those parts of the, of the world. Areas that could use that, that, that kind of thing. They could use that kind of economic boost. So that's always good. But the cities that they depict, you know, the New Orleans and the Detroit, they're often very gritty, right? There's always that gritty, seedy, underbelly kind of thing. And these depictions of Mobile, these were beautiful. This area looked really nice. And I do think that's something for, for states to consider when it comes to getting these movies made in their states, is that they can be used as an advertisement for their states. And the United States is a big country. And when it comes to going on vacation, people you know, they, they think of sort of the traditional destinations. You know, Alabama is not one that really comes up on a lot of people's radars. It's a state I've never been to before. Uh, it, I, you know, never really thought that, you know, I mean, I've, I've thought about places like Mobile. It seems like the Gulf Coast looks really nice. But yeah, just, you know, usually it's way down the list, but you watch something like this and you go, oh, you know, maybe Mobile's a place to go. Maybe there's a cheap flight out there. Maybe the hotels aren't as expensive as other parts of the, the South or other parts of the country. And I think that's a really cool way to, maybe get some of these subsidized that, you know, these states, they they bring people, you know, low budget direct-to-video movie makers to their states to make the movies there, maybe get subsidies. And on the other hand, the states are getting the word out there about some of the nicer parts, because again, a place like Alabama, we don't always think, you know, it's again, United States, big place, um, states like Alabama kind of get lost in the shuffle sometimes. And I thought that was a, a cool thing to see that a state like that is, it's getting represented in a way that, you know, again, somebody from the Northeast like myself, you, you just wouldn't think that, oh, yeah, let's, let's go check out a vacation there. Um, so, yeah, that was a really cool thing. Something I'd like to see a little bit more. I mean, I'd like to see, you know, Detroit maybe sell itself a little bit more or or New Orleans and places like that as well. Uh, it, it, you know, not always be, you know, these gritty, rough direct-to-video movies that we always see uh, on the blog here. Okay, so that is everything. Uh, so we'll, we'll wrap up here. Uh, so again, uh, next podcast is going to be in a couple weeks. So we're, we're going to do them bi-weekly from here on out. Um, if you want to keep in touch with what, what's going on with us, Facebook page is always great. Uh, Twitter, uh, uh, 
now we're adding in Instagram, adding in Tumblr. Um, so, you know, like Twitter, I think it's at DTV Connoisseur. Uh, same thing with Instagram, at DTV Connoisseur. Uh, Tumblr is at DTVC. And then um, on Facebook, we're direct to video connoisseur. Check us out on any of those places. Um, drop us a line. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any ideas for, for new shows, new episodes, new, new blog posts, movies that you've seen recently that you really want us to take a look at. Any of those things. Um, by all means, drop us a line and uh, we'll, we'll kind of go from there. All right. Thanks, everybody. And talk to you soon. plan for when your home becomes too small or when the next one gets too big. At Sandy Spring Bank, we're here to help create personalized solutions for financing your home loan. Whether it's a new home or refinance, renovation or addition, fixer-upper or new build. Banking is a conversation. Let's talk about your mortgage. Visit sandyspringbank.com mortgage. Mortgage home equity and other credit products offered by Sandy Spring Bank, equal housing lender.